Making change in the world is often presented as a hero's journey, where a brave soul faces up to making a difference out there in the external world. But the story leaves out the most important part of change making. So much of why change makers step up, how they take their action, and if and when they can do it, is shaped by things that are hard for others to see. Some of our most creative and inspiring change makers are the most complex of all. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Grace Tame. Grace Tame is an Australian household name. She was named Australian of the Year in 2021 for her advocacy for survivors of child sexual assault. She fought alongside many other young people to change Australian laws to allow survivors like her to speak about their abuse. Today, Grace talks to us about some of the things that Twitter and media commentators cannot see the kind of things that help energise how she makes change in the world. She shares about how her experience of change-making has been affected by the pain and impact of multidimensional trauma. She contrasts her time making change after becoming Australian of the Year with the challenges of making change while living with limited economic means and in the context of abuse. She also shares the profound and intersectional impacts that have come from being autistic and a survivor of trauma. This chat is full of stories that you haven't heard before, even if you have read her memoir, The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner. Grace Tame is a young woman rattling the cage of how Australian society needs to be, defying the lies of Murdoch and nasty political leadership. Come and hear her unfiltered. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So welcome to Changemakers, Grace Tame. Thank you, Amanda. It is such a pleasure to have you here with me today, actually physically in the same space as well as in this conversation to talk about changemaking. So I want to start, we always start, the podcast with a conversation about what kind of change maker are you? I'm wondering how you might answer that question. What do you, how do you see yourself for making change in the world? Well, it's hard, I guess, to see oneself in the world. Um, <laughs> objectivity is, is, is hard to achieve. And, and my approach to change making, I suppose, has changed not in so far as uh, what drives me, what motivates me but the access to resources that I've had. So I started advocacy in some capacity about six years ago. And in that time, my life, which has always been turbulent, has had more dramatic peaks and troughs. I started out living in a, you know, a a one bedroom apartment in Los Angeles. And I was quite disconnected from all the people that I was working with. So I wasn't actually on the ground, but I was divulging my story. It was the first, 
I suppose the, the first time that I had lifted the lid on my childhood sexual abuse trauma and shared it with uh, not only a journalist, a journalist who approached um, my, myself and my mother, um, her name's Nina Fennell. She does a lot of work, especially here in New South Wales, but nationally on sexual assault and has made um, huge change herself as an individual, but also as a part of many campaigns that she's driven, that she's been a part of, including Let Her Speak. So, yeah, I guess what's always driven me, though, is a few fundamentals. One of them is is facts, truth. Um, one of them is human connection and another is education and community, I guess, is in there with that human connection element um, because the way you solve any problem, the way you face any change is by taking a community approach. Even if a particular cause isn't affecting you personally, it is when you think of the whole of, of society and if somebody's not living their best life, then the community's not performing at their best at its best. But I guess to, to the real motivator for me that bleeds through all of the different types of change making, if you will, the one that sort of that the key, the key principle or the fundamental that underpins everything that I do is a want to prevent as opposed to simply respond and intervene. Those things are important because there will always be a degree of unrest and chaos and that's not a defeatist attitude, that's just a realist attitude. But to me, the best hope for setting a particular course in motion to, for, in terms of change making is to start at the very start. And child protection is the epitome of that to me, because that is, you know, children are the future, children are the clay. We're in that developmental phase as a, as a child. And if you, you know, you can treat a child in myriad ways and, and those are going to those ways are going to affect them for the rest of their life. It's going to affect how they interact with other people. And so for me, it's it's about really putting as much of our resources or as many of our resources, as much of our time and effort into prevention, preventative education, giving people the the skills, the knowledge, you know, knowledge is power to become their own change maker. Yeah. You know, it's that idea of empowerment as opposed to if you are considered a change maker having power over see I never approach things like that I was explaining the other night in Newcastle if it wasn't for the fact that I either have usually Max or somebody else there at those bigger events you wouldn't be able to pull me away I would take every single person out to dinner I would hang out and listen to every single person and that can't yeah you can't do that but I you know and and it's but it's like you said to avoid power over it. Like the opposite of that is power with. To for, with yeah, this to, connection. To forge authentic bonds with not only individuals, um, but groups, mm. communities, and to ask questions. Yeah. Primarily. Because, you know, change making, change making is such a broad concept and it covers such a broad range of issues, if you will. You know, and so each issue and each individual and each community requires a tailored approach. And I think where we can sometimes go wrong in, in providing aid or in support, not necessarily from a bad faith perspective, but from perhaps a short-term mindset as opposed to a long-term mindset, is by assuming the needs or assuming the solution that works in a given scenario. When what we really need to do in order to create authentic, lasting change, impactful change that, that, that has meaning is to ask what an individual's needs are or ask what a community's needs are and, and in fact, ask more questions to figure out what 
is going to be best in that environment. It's also a, you know, as opposed to a symptomatic, treating, mm. treating the symptoms or in a palliative way, it's, it's trying to find what the root cause of a problem is. And what I'm hearing you say is that, like, the, the root problem, the root challenge the only person who really understands that is the person themselves. It's not done to them, solving a problem for them. Well, it's yeah, yeah. creating a situation where someone can be in charge of helping to design how the solution emerges. And that's exactly right, how the solution emerges, how it evolves. Because in some situations, especially when you're talking about child sexual abuse or any kind of trauma that affects someone in, in myriad ways that are unpredictable, there's, there can be that issue of people not knowing what their needs are. I know oh, that I have I've only, only sort of learnt to assert what my needs are because I spent so much of my life pleasing other people and I don't mean that in an authentic way. I just mean suppressing my child, my per, like my personal needs uh, because, well, I'm autistic, but I was born into instability and didn't have a frame of reference of consistency. Mm. And, and as well, having, having had child sexual abuse perpetrated against me when I was both, you know, six years old. But the more I, I, I personally feel impactful, pivotal experience was when I was about 14, I met Mr. Bester and, you know, the abuse was perpetrated, the physical abuse, sexual abuse was perpetrated when I was 15 against me. And that is that, that, that crucial stage. You're so impressionable. And when, you know, when those experiences that are so extreme, if you will, and I guess darker than for a long time even the public were aware of because it's really hard to get all of those nuances and details out there in one go about the, I guess, the level of sadism or psychopathy or things like that because we're also desensitised to a lot of these things with the amount of content that is proliferated oh. constantly. So I think that even when a particularly sinister perpetrator or issue comes along, sometimes it can wash over us mm. for those of us who aren't on the ground dealing with things every day. And so when, when something like that happens to you as a child, when your sense of self isn't fully formed yet, when you're in that process of identity integration, it is that process in of itself that is corrupted or the course is changed more significantly. And so when we're talking about prevention and, and children, there are so many different, you know, responses. So you see in the you know, in the prison system, we've got an uh, age of criminal responsibility in Australia that's the highest uh, age is in at the ACT, which is 12, and everywhere else it's 10. And there's efforts to raise the age. There's also efforts to abolish the age, abolish the cage, and not put children in prison. You look at the population of children in prison and 83% at least, at least mm. have trauma. Yeah. And instead of treating that trauma in a lot of cases with a holistic approach and without shaming the child who doesn't really know the difference because what, they, what they've probably done is mirrored behaviour that has been perpetrated against them. And we see this with child sexual abuse specifically a lot where you've got young perpetrators, child perpetrators of child sexual abuse on other children who have been victims, victims. themselves first of all. And it's the adult, the cunning adult perpetrators who have told them that 
they love them. And so what that child is actually doing in a lot of cases, not all necessarily, but in a lot of cases, what that child is doing is mimicking that experience that they think is uh, a sign or a, de a, a demonstration of love. And then when it comes to the point where they are found out or that issue is exposed, it's the child perpetrator who's also been a victim who suffers the most consequences and those consequences include punishment yeah and the sad thing is is that that child actually has the most a hope of being redeemed of learning a new way mm. than a perpetrator for example who's much much older set in their ways yeah. has sadistic tendencies and it's it's hard though because of course these programs a lot of these programs you know, justice reinvestment and um, other support programs can cost like a million dollars a yeah. year to support a child. I think that what you're saying is really profound because a lot of the time when we have conversations with people who are, you know, involved in social change, there's a sense at which, oh, well, anyone's capable of social change at any given moment, right? And what I'm hearing, and I'm not saying that, that, that people don't have agency, but I think that what you're raising and bringing into the conversation is actually the question of when someone might have agency to make change, it can very much be shaped by the, the experiences that they've had in life and trauma, while it doesn't prevent you from being able to enact change, it creates the conditions under which change can occur. Like it, it, it makes things different and we need to be aware of that. That's, it's what's interesting. It's almost like concept of basic physics, if you will, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It might not be that black and white. It might not be that yeah. straightforward. It's often very messy and trauma is this thing, this beast, which I said before is unpredictable. And it affects individuals in different ways and it affects different communities in different ways. Absolutely. This is why, you know, and people will balk at, not people, but certain factions of the community might balk at these concepts of intersectionality and these buzzwords. However, what that really denotes is a specific and nuanced approach. Yes, so maybe there's something different here and there's not a cookie cutter approach. You know, so I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse and I'm autistic and even in the experience of autism, there are so many different presentations of trauma because that trauma, much like if you think of it in terms of chemistry, that trauma is going to interact with the presentations of autism, which I was born with. Yeah. And those presentations of trauma are going to be different to a First Nations person, especially when you think about the context of Australia and our history and that intergenerational trauma again, yeah. which is a very real thing. And I think, you know, ev every person is, you know, as a f like physical body, as a spiritual body, it will have an imprint on them of some sort that they've inherited. Mm. And again, so a person with a disability, for example, or a refugee or a migrant has those other experiences that are going to interact with yeah. trauma or any issue or any situation, any problem that, that it needs needs solving, not that, you know, people or, or things like autism or anything like that are problems to be solved, but to, to bring everyone together and to create that understanding, which yeah. is the foundation of progress, hmm. that education, which is the foundation of progress, there needs to be a hearing of all of these different experiences yeah. to bring every person or every community of along together. Exactly, because actually everyone is different. And in some ways, maybe this is a great moment for us to look at your distinctiveness. Yeah, and I guess when you were saying before, <laughs> You were saying before. No, that, not quite yet. I'm not ready. <laughs> more and more. Go. Well, I mean, I, I don't really know. I don't stop to think 
very much I'm kind of just, I'm, I'm, I'm always on the go. Although you're pretty reflective. I've read the book, Grace. Like there's clearly an enormous amount of reflective capacity in you. I mean. Yes, I just have to, care, I just be, to be careful that it doesn't border on self-flagellation because that's a that's a, <laughs> yeah, a, it's a tricky to fall yeah, into. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, think, I think that's one of the, you know, that's that's so important as well. You know, I know, I know, like in any given day, I'll go, oh gosh, I wish I hadn't done that or, you know, I I should have done this differently or, and it's, I think when we're talking about advocacy or change making or however you want to term it, there is a, a sense of urgency and sometimes that is very real. Other times it can be inflated by the force of illusion or by the circumstances around us, which for many of us who are living in cities or in sort of that first world where we have access to content that is we're, we're being flooded with all the time. There is this, I would say, kind of insidious need to constantly be doing something. And to be doing. To be doing not something. Not so much to, being, right? And so you, you'll find that that often produces conditions of competition where they don't need to be competition. Mm. But if you pull back and look at a sector like human rights and all of its different subsets, a lot of people who enter into that work in terms of activism or or advocacy are drawn to it because they have a first-hand or second-hand experience. So there is a lot of trauma within that space. And so there's, there's that element of it. However, there are so many sort of power holders, if you will, or power brokers working behind the scenes. And, you know, however you want to separate the parts of the ecosystem that drives any kind of abusive cycle, whether it's the criminal justice system, whether it's the media, whether it's the state and how those inevitably interact and constantly interact. Mm. So that there's sort of this, that lack mentality, that being in a state yeah. of constant, you know, constantly scarcity. Not, not scarcity, constant scarcity, not just in terms of physical resources, but in terms of perhaps whether it's recognition yeah. or, you know, the feeling of being supported. That is in of itself trauma rearing mm. its head yeah. and that will then be reinforced or it can either be reinforced or tempered by by the forces that have actually have supreme power actually have greater mm. power however what tends to happen is that the tr- like trauma element is looking for either something to attach to or something to attack something to react to and so you'll often see that the reactions are taken out on the closest thing or person or group yeah. to the other person or group presenting that trauma and so you'll get this sort of fragmentation or friction within the community itself which is actually part of change as well because there needs to be that difference of opinion and because if everyone thought the same thing that wouldn't be that could also be its own form of trauma in a way because it's false because we're different and it comes down to a lot of you know because that pace is that pace whether it's real in some cases or whether it's enhanced by media and content that Mm. we're constantly exposed to which influences our subconscious and unconscious mind there's that need to to again come back to this idea of asking questions as opposed to what I see a lot of um especially from the state is this kind of presumptive approach the projection of what needs to happen yeah the assumption. So I'm dying to know, like you're describing experiences of change making you've gone through. You must be. You've, they're quite vivid. Is there, like, can you paint a picture of this? An example? Oh my goodness. Well, it's hard, you know. I'm loath to say to people, I'm, I'm loath to speak in these platitudes that apply to everybody, such as, oh, we're all capable of making change. And that is true 
insofar as change does not have to be a grand gesture. It can be a contributive gesture that is small in a vacuum. Can you think of a time when that's happened to you, where you've had that small form of change happen to you? Well, I guess, you know, the Let Her Speak campaign, which Nina Fennell created and and, and still runs, which started off as, um, you know, my case as a kind of foundation or test case. And then it attracted, there were more survivors who came on board. First of all, there were two in Tasmania uh, because it is a, it was a Tasmanian piece of legislation that was restricting or actually legally uh, stopping survivors of child sexual abuse from self-identifying in the media, Section 194K of Tasmania's Evidence Act. And so we had two more survivors in Tasmania. We had Janelle O'Connor and then Tamika Ridgway, who lent their incredible stories, whose aren't mine to tell, but they're these harrowing stories that are both confronting but inspiring and indicative of the need to return the agency to the individual who has experienced something so objectively unjust that is in of itself a, a loss of control at the base level and beyond that, an invasion of the self, a, you know, and I'm not speaking for these people, I'm speaking in general terms of what these, these experiences of abuse, besides being physical, which we understand I think a lot, but beyond the physical, these experiences are, especially when those things happen to you at a young age, when you were a child or a young person, you know, that they were great, and I say great, I mean, they were prime examples of of how much agency can be lost mm. um, and the, you know, the ramifications of that on the individual and the community. And then we had more survivors because there were other similar types of legislation in the one in the Northern Territory, there was a piece of legislation and then one in Victoria, which is slightly different. And so we had this, you know, thing that started off with, um, there were a couple of us sort of working quite hard in the interim and then others came on board and worked really hard and it was this collective, but then it also was a collective in terms of the community. So when I won a court order a year before the law was changed in Tasmania, I won a court order in April of 2019 and as a gift, Nina Fennell gave me a book of um, the first 5,000 signatures uh, on the petition to change the law. Now, there were a total of 8,154, I think, or 53. You know, either way, it was over 8,000 signatures. And this is quite interesting because often we don't see an optic reference of change. We yeah. hear those numbers and statistics and they get beyond a certain point that we can actually conceptualise. Yeah. And you can't, you, can't, you can't measure. But also what was imbued in that book uh, that she printed out, which was the size of an old phone book, you know, the wow. length and depth of a, an old phone book because it had each of the names underneath each other listed with also the individual's, you know, geographic location and their occupation, their vocation. And so what you, what you saw, you know, how many people, not just how many people got on board and all they did was lend their one individual signature, um, just signing a name or putting in a couple of details. You saw how broadly, you know, how, how many in diverse backgrounds came together and rallied behind this cause. Yeah. And you could see it, literally, you could see it. Wow. And it was quite a, an inspiring, it's quite an inspiring thing to sort of see and hold in your hands, yes. like a physical kind of... And sometimes I think people um, can poo-poo and dismiss 
small acts like yeah, that. Yeah, like it's, again, because it's not in a vacuum. Your signature does not exist in a vacuum. Your $1 donation does not exist in a vacuum. Even if it's a $1 one-off donation doesn't exist in a vacuum because yeah. maybe you donate on a website like GoFundMe or GetUp or one of those, you know, great vehicles for creating change and petitions. And the beautiful thing about many of those is, and you can be anonymous when you do it, but they'll often show the, the sort of a running tally of the, the donations. And so you that in of itself is what, can be the little little leverage, the little springboard to inspire somebody else to do something. And I love, and this was your story, right? Like you're there, I mean, out on a limb. It was mine, it was also everybody else's and I think that that's what was really important. But is you, there's you and then there's a community of other people who are victim survivors who have mm-hmm. been so brave and then there's a community of family and friends and others around you and then there's these thousands of people around the country, like all these different types of community coming together to make something different. And that's sort of, and that's what it's all been about. It's all been about the community approach and either re-establishing or improving the the connection and the bonds in an authentic way and really communicating. In a healing, I don't want to use a word that you're not using, but like almost an antidote Hmm. to some of the experiences that you had, that this idea of community can be something different. Some of the signatures in this book were from girls I went to high school with who I, you know, there was no, because there were no conversations at that time after I first reported to police and then it was in the media, I didn't have conversations with anybody. There were yeah. no... Uh, I, I really didn't speak to my parents about it much. I've barely spoken to my father about it. It's only in sort of recent years that we've had some kinds of conversations. But it's, it is really hard, almost hardest for the people immediately involved mm. because of that emotional element and that vicarious trauma that is so strong, especially for somebody who has a connection to that person. But to see those names there, that in of itself was a form of change. It was a it was a visual demonstration of a shift in attitudes. So did you find, you went through the book and you found the yeah, names? Yeah, I went through the book. I didn't read all of the names, but I read, I, I mean, I, I turned over every page with wow. my mother. I remember sitting there with my mother and with Nina and, and looking through and seeing, because you know when you look through and you see something that yeah. just springs out at you. And when you have something like that, then you get this concept of momentum. And that's what I really rely on as well. Because if you tr- if you have a goal that seems really big, it can be overwhelming if you just think about getting to that end point. However, if you think about making incremental, smaller changes, mm-hmm. not only are they easier to achieve, they then provide you with the sense of accomplishment, the experience and the motivation to continue making more incremental changes and eventually you'll get there. It's that one step at a time, domino, uh, multiplier, however you want to conceptualize and, and think about those, you know, those, those approaches. It's, for me, like marathon running, that's the metaphor that sits yeah. with me as per, as a person who has run a marathon. Now, if you are at the start line and hear the hear the gun to to go, and your mind is on K forty two and the finish, you're very you know you're, you're going to go wrong. You need to just think about one kilometre at a time. You can only run one step at a time unless you're Inspector Gadget. You know, <laughs> and that's very tricky. Um, you know, but and. And you never know what's going to happen in that moment. You never Where know. Where do you think what... you learnt that philosophy? Because I think I think the, I, I, I completely agree. Right? I've lived it my whole life. Yeah. So it's it's like when someone asks you to then go and teach someone how to drive. You know, when people ask me like, <laughs> "Where did you get that from?" I, I've always sort of lived that way. I've lived in a way 
where, so my parents divorced when I was two and, you know, they split relatively amicably. However, there was never any, there was never, it was just never any consistency. It was four days, three days, four days, three days. And there was just a lot of disruption and dysfunction and by the time I was then 14, 15, like 14, I was in hospital for six weeks of April, around April. So this time, oh, it would have been 2009. And that I now understand to be um, a sort of a, a response to some of the trauma that I'd had as a child, but also the instability itself mm. and autism, which when a person is anxious with autism, the symptoms such as the need to you know, restrict or have routine will be exacerbated. And interestingly, my mother actually had posited to the doctors that I might be autistic and that was something to consider and she was knocked back. And <sighs> it wasn't until seven, six or seven years later that I received a diagnosis after a year of um, thorough interviews with people that were close to me and, and you know were around me when I was a child but what I mean you but also you're, is somewhere in there was also this sort of drum beat of one foot in front of the other How, so that that it's was that, a coping response to this situation yeah, yeah it's that it's that concept of adaptability and and those steps haven't always been positive those steps haven't always been um, straight ahead they've been to the side they've been around I've you know gone around in circles and repeated unhealthy patterns I've gone backwards mm. that is a part of life uh, but in those and 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 there are some some experiences that you have that won't necessarily be learning experiences. They will just be shit. And yeah. we need to be able to say that. We yeah, need I to be able to say. It has to be called out too. We need to be able to say, you know. Like Not everything like, oh, happens for a reason. Some things are just no, shit. <laughs> no, because that is insulting to say to somebody who has had, you know, child sexual abuse perpetrated yeah. on them, who gets leukemia when they're a child. Everything happens for a reason? Fuck off. No. That is awful. That is cruel to say, oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, like, lucky you. Like, you know, go off. and read a self-help yeah. book and, you know, and then run a warm bath. Um, that's a bit dark. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also, whilst coming back to this idea that, you know, uh, you know, our circumstances, therefore our access to resources and our perspectives will will keep changing, um, you know, some more than others. Mm. But, but, you know, it, it, over life, you know, life is this very amorphous, transient thing that, that, that where there's not a lot of permanency. You know, to say to someone who is in the throes of deep trauma, and I have been in this place before, you know, in my early 20s and, and I was living overseas and living a paycheck-to-paycheck life, and I've experienced violence at the hands of more than one partner. And, you know, while you're, while you're living in a situation where you're sharing a house with somebody who's punching holes in the walls or spitting on you or, you know, that, 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 that violence, if somebody says, oh, you know, everyone has the capacity to make change, it would be very reasonable for that person on, you know, in, that, in the midst of that experience and tumult, it would be very reasonable for them to turn around and say, uh, fuck off. Yeah. Um, Shut down. Because the, there is this need to take care of the self first, not in a selfish way, but actually in terms of you can't, A, function to the best of your ability. You can't be a yeah. person then taking on somebody else's load. It's actually quite dangerous. It's not a, just a disservice to yourself, but it's a disservice to the either the individuals or the group or the issue that you're trying to change if you are not able to do that. Or not. Absolutely. And also if someone, when someone is feeling broken, 
not the same situation you're describing, but with someone in Say that you're making, say you're making change, but it's coming from a space where, where there's uns, real trauma in inside. Sometimes your social change can be broken too. Power over, telling, you know, dominating other people, like being making change in the world is not always um, a holy a holy force. Like there, are, I think you've, there's that, that that tension between change yourself and change the world. Like get yourself in a place where things are okay for you to then be able to make change. Good things can happen. Run from a place where things are not good for you into the world of change making. That's not necessarily a solution, a place no, for harm. and again, that, that, you know, I just heard you say, and I know what you meant, but like the, that idea of like getting yourself into, and that comes from this sort of broken some of these really broken ideas that we have been sort of insidiously conditioned to believe, you know, that, oh, that, that almost toxic individualism. It's a very, I think, you know, as someone who lived in America for six years and who's recently been back and seen, seen the social conditions, the social, you know, the, the, the wealth disparity, which was already very extreme, become more extreme and, Mm. uh, impossible to escape from if you walk down the street in New York, impossible to ex- escape from if you walk down the street in Los Angeles or, or even in Denver or um, in Florida. You see this these extremes side by side and it's all very <laughs> kind of heavy stuff. Tra- trauma presents in a often in a way that insurmount like little small tasks are the ones that seem the most insurmountable and those can be like life administrative tasks yeah um self-care tasks like even brushing brushing the teeth brushing your teeth or getting out of bed and so that is where again shaming somebody or or and not that you were shaming anybody but that that concept of sort of just sort of explaining to someone what their circumstances are is really unhelpful Mm. um but to be able to um, recognise or, you know, try and improve ways that we can really help those in need mm. who are, like, you know, in that sort of acute trauma phase yeah. of, of not even, I guess, realising or understanding the whole trauma, which, again, child sexual abuse or, or any kind of violence or um, trauma that, ex- that is perpetrated on a child there's one of the key differences is that a lot of these things are high level uh, s- concepts in terms of psychology and in terms of physiology of how trauma presents. Mm. A child should not be expected to have a grasp on that, let alone be able to communicate that. We therefore need to do better. And there are lots and lots of support groups, um, first hand responders, services, good, you know, out there mm. who are very aware of what trauma presents like especially Mm. in children bringing the rest of the community along is still an area where we need to see more change because we still have very negative attitudes for Mm. example towards anyone who does who engages in drug abuse yeah and it's because it's It's not that in a vacuum it's not that in a vacuum it's uh you know children who who may have been taught that that is the only way to deal with a situation they might those might be the only coping mechanisms they have access to mm, mm. because of their social conditions. I guess the thing that I think is um, where my mind keeps wandering is also thinking about how the discussion about trauma is both an actual like something that we need to deal with in society, right? Something that is uh, there's perpetrated abuse and causes pain. It's also a metaphor for for um, the kind of behaviour that is happening in the world of change-making sometimes. 
Yes. That, you know, that to get, to go back to that, you know, you're talking about the media or, or other, or some not-for-profit organisations where there can be a culture of how people treat each other that isn't life-giving, you know, that is competitive, that is um, that is uh, doing, that is in like that, that, is, that lacks in that, that perpetrates pain, right? That this idea of pain existing not in the same dimension. I'm not saying that they're the same thing, but but that there is there's something about the idea that there can be trauma in the world of change making that I. I don't know. I feel like that. That a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It comes from a, this sort of a build up over a long period of time of individuals and communities for various reasons with various different experiences. Again, whether it's First Nations people, the disabled community, um, you know, and that covers a broad range in of itself. And you get these what I think are problematic terms like lateral violence, when in reality it is understandable for people in different communities to express either differences of opinion or their their legitimate frustration frustrations, especially when we are taught by the, the powers that be to perpetrate those very characteristics. And this is where we see the trauma mind, if you will, in many ways parallels the supremacy mind insofar as uh, some of the presentations like resistance to control being taken away or resistance to change. However, the difference, of course, between a traumatised person or group is that that experience and that feeling of not having any agency, of not having any control, is not only legitimate and cellular, it is uh, reinforced by the reality of being vulnerable and having experienced some form of oppression or a negative experience. Not saying that, you know, supremacists are somehow immune to pain or anything like that, but there's a difference in the level of actual legitimate power. There's a stark difference in the level of power that a traumatised group, even if they are a traumatised person with privilege, trauma overrides that. You know, having having access to resources if you're uh, someone who is is legitimately traumatised does not preclude you from sympathy. It does not preclude you from experiencing pain. So the difference between a group that is traumatised or an individual that is traumatised and the uh, supreme holder of the supreme holders of power is the actual level of power those groups have. Yeah. And what we can see happen is that. Because there are some similar presentations in the supremacy group of, or the supremacy mind, which is an enemy mind, which is, um, you know, friendships or connections built on common enemy, you can often see that traumatised people can get carried away with or can easily fall into the trap of associating themselves with the, the supreme group because there's that there's that need to reconnect there's that need to feel safe but also because they it looks as though from the outside that these people in supreme positions of power actually traumatize themselves yeah well. they, because they have a victimology they have yeah. a they have a victimology or of you know when it suits them but that is a i would i would say is a not so much a victimology as a it's almost like an ideology it is an, an it is an ideology it's and this is we're speaking in very very general terms yeah. here, and also it's almost like we need to provide an example. I know I've got one in my head. Like I keep thinking of the you know the bad political figures in American modern politics. Perhaps could be on described all, on all sides. In American yeah. politics, it is w- walking into American politics is walking into a trap because it doesn't matter what side you are on. You are walking into a 
an environment where there is unlimited money, so unlimited forces mm. that can compromise you and your party. Yeah. And th those are the forces, spe generally speaking, that any politician will have to answer to. And the compromises are therefore much bigger in terms of yeah. the, uh, the value systems where shortcuts have to be made or shortcuts, you, you, you know, people, th people think that they have to make or are kind of pigeonholed into. And it's quite extreme. Unlimited money in politics. Now, if you're going into politics in America with a grassroots background and an intention, a good intention to maintain that grassroots approach, good luck <laughs> to you because, you, you know, you're likely to be someone with less money. And yeah. at the end of the day, it is, you know, change bends to the will of money. So on the, like... You're just like step most from, of the time. Mo yeah, most of the time, not all the time. So, what are the forces like in your life? You've had to ha deal this, right? Like you became a fighter with you know eight thousand people on a petition to becoming Australian of the Year and high profile, right? You've you've had to steel yourself as a change maker to make sure you can stay true to to all the values that you've held throughout your life. What are, what are the strategies that you? How have you been oh, able to do goodness. that? I know, I know we don't have forever, but, you know, like what are some of the things that have allowed you to hold true to those values? Well, really staying grounded in the authentic relationships and meaningful values of really honestly simple things. And I think simplicity is overlooked. And that is the, the immaterial the immaterial experiential souvenirs of running or any kind of movement with respect to the fact that there are first, you know the people in different positions who won't be able to access that who that is not that for whom that is not a viable um, antidote or preventative measure but trying to move oneself trying to be even just be outdoors if you can't actually physically move to be outdoors and to plant your feet or at least be in the vicinity of the beach or just nature that is undisturbed by the influence of of, of too much urbanization to to try to stop moving to try to and I mean that in the in, in terms of the mind to, to to try to pull back and pull out of what can become a whirlpool like situation of keeping up with a rat race and reading knowledge is power it is also medicine both the preventative healing, and curative yes both the curative <laughs> and preventative kind it's also a way to get oneself out of out of the mind into a different world or a set of conditions also communicating with other people who are going through something and I don't mean that in, in the sense of necessarily taking on every single person's pain but to get yourself out of your head sometimes or the best way to sort of reset the perspective yeah if you will is to ask somebody else how they're going yeah and your you, you uh, can then be more easily grounded in that sense of kind of where your place is and uh, so relationships, like, curiosity, being in your body, being in the in nature, like they they sound like and and try to eat well and try to avoid yeah. things that don't help. It's now gone over three months since I've had any alcohol. Um, six months over six months, seven months since I've been on Twitter. I still do engage with... I love that the alcohol... It's better to be off Twitter, really, isn't it? I think it's actually more of a nefarious drug than alcohol. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Alcohol... Alcohol, alcohol, alcohol is... Honestly, is one of the worst... Personally, I think is one of the worst drugs out there because it is so normalised and the narratives that are around alcohol... I mean, you put cigarettes 
you know, swap out cigarettes in yeah. that conversation. And we just, it is a poison. That's mm. what it is. It's a poison that is dressed up in whether it's sugar or, you know, labels or social environments where it's accepted and where the social gathering revolves around the consumption of it the narratives around alcohol consumption are really quite dangerous. Mm. I mean, I've been in really precarious situations because alcohol is this thing that's legal. Somebody over the age of 18 in Australia can get alcohol. Um, but yeah, that's a different conversation for another day. So yeah, avoiding for me personally, and it, it's not, I say this going, it's not one size fits all. Everyone's going to have a yeah. different different way of finding an outlet, making making art, creating something, sitting with others and doing something perhaps in silence or listening to music. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. And I think there is that, that impulse, which is reinforced by a lot of the media that we consume, that it, there is that impulse to be present, presented with a solution or possible means of, of helping. It might not be the be all and end all because often we need a suite of solutions to face any problem or to, to counter any problem and improve the situation. But often we are presented with solutions that are quite simple or that could help. But there's this human element of suspicion mm. that drives us to reject it in place of something that is more complicated. Personally, I think that is actually a, an incarnation of the trauma mind of this need to self-sabotage in order to keep going in this pattern of bad behavior which is which is familiar because it's actually easier for us to stick to something that we know even if that territory that familiar territory is fraught with trauma and conflict and even abuse which I personally think is different to, to verbal conflict which it's easier for us to stay in that pattern because we know what we're doing mm. and we have sort of programmed responses as opposed to challenge yeah those belief systems and rewire ourselves yeah, and that's, I mean, in some ways it's that uncertainty idea that you alluded fear to. Fear of the unknown. Yep, you that's know, biggest fear, isn't it? You've just got to be able unknown. to run the marathon and put one foot in front of the other to yeah. maybe get you there. Yeah, fear of the unknown is, is the biggest one. Because we want to be able to, that is the human impulse. We want to be able to control. Yeah. We want to, and this is the human impulse between, but behind a lot of this compartmentalization of people, of characterizing people, of labeling people, because we want to know. We want to understand. Hmm. But no individual, no group is just one yeah. thing. Those aren't, those aren't the markers of identity. They are compartments of an identity that is, in reality, far more complex. Which is a lot more interesting than any of the labels can make out. Exactly. They are um, connective, bridge-building bridge elements, if you will. But, was, but this is some, uh, yeah, I always like the phrase, the, a mosaic, right? We've just got so many parts, yeah. so many parts constantly changing with some things brighter than others in who we are, but for sure, yeah, so diverse. So my final, my final reflective question for, for you, Grace, is like, you know, thinking of your life as, you know, you've said a lot of the qualities of your change making have been with you throughout your life, but you've now, you now, you know, widely renowned as, as a very significant Australian change maker. Well, I regard you as a very significant Australian change maker for sure. Some would, some regard me as a pest. So well, maybe know. there are sometimes <laughs> similar things. Or... I love those things, right? You know, that unsatisfied with the status quo, insistent that it can be different and can be better. They are qualities that I value very much in you. When you look back to, you know, go back to those times when you were just starting to fight, just starting to fight, and now you've got all this experience. Is there any particular quality or capacity that you feel like you have learnt from or garnered now that you'd love to 
give to yourself when you were younger? Is there something that's come from your experience that you really treasure? Well, I'd love to give lots of things to my younger self. Um, I didn't have a, yeah. Uh, however, I don't, I don't know if that's sort of helpful in, in, in that, because I think again, when we shift, sorry, we shift these, shift our focus to going, oh, well, what could have we, what could we have done better then? It's never going to be helpful because things are not, no. you're never going to be able to know. However, the, the really key lessons or takeaways for me are long-term versus short-term and listening. Listening as much as driving or, um, you know, holding hands with others and, and bringing them along and sort of being, the, being a voice, um, one of many voices. Recognising this very true element that no contribution to any effort to create change is too small and, you know, demonstrating that gratitude, that positive mindset as much as possible with respect to the fact that there are going to be days where you just need to be able to sit down and go this is a bit of a shit time you need to be able to be kind enough to yourself to allow that not out of self-pity but out of acceptance of the reality of a situation and know that it isn't permanent as hard as that is being open-minded and prepared to reflect as much as possible to do that self-critique and to the more the more I learn the more I realise constantly that there is to know and expertise is a, a strange concept because I it, almost like the more experience that I have, the less of an expert I feel like. And that's really important to, to know that and to... to Graceful. Well, I don't know. Yeah, that is what grace means, the idea, that, that sort of recognition. It's pretty beautiful, Grace. Well, yeah, and I think also too just that really... Um, connective and that collective approach of mm. um, bringing out the trying to bring out the le, the leader or the change agent if you will in in every person um, in every community knowing that you know it's trying to break away from idealistic uh, notions or approaches that are going to just and at the end of the day make things worse you know we, we, we won't ever be able to please everyone there won't be mm. you know like absolute I don't believe in absolutes, not again, because I'm a defeatist, but because there just can't be, there needs to be some kind of balance. There's always going to be push pull. There's always going to be resistance. Resistance are the conditions that create opportunities for change, trying to be adaptable and know that your method for creating change in one set of circumstances is not necessarily going to apply to another. Um, and again, to, to, to really know what the method needs to be or the, the series of methods combined is you're going to find that by constantly asking questions and being, you know, open to learn new ideas. It sounds like a way to be. Yeah. And that, again, like evolving with, yeah. evolving with the time, evolving with the communities that you may, you know, come across and work alongside with yep. accepting that your role will shift and that attitudes towards you will shift as well. I mean, people will say, oh, like it's a lot of this stuff is, some, some of the stuff that I like experience in terms of the, the negative reactions or resistance, I've lived that since I was 16. And sometimes I don't I, I know that, that that really sits or that lands with people, you know, to read when you're 16, like teacher admits to affair with student when the reality of that was so dark and it was a textbook case of grooming by a perpetrator who had perpetrated these patterns of behaviour several times. Yeah. And to be the sort of... A person who has absorbed the most shame 
in that. I mean, that's sort of shifting. It's definitely shifted. And thanks to great initiatives that, that have been driven by people like Nina Fennell and all the other, you know, E-Rock, um, End Rope on Campus Australia, who, um, and Shana Bremner, who worked with my mother, you know, to, to sort of take on the university that, that, that had this man as a convicted child sex offender, not only on the university campus, but sharing shower facilities in student accommodation with young oh undergraduates, you know, just to... Like, you know, my mother, my mother doing that with like Shana Bremner, who's, um, who's incredible in her advocacy as well. And who just works tooth and nail, much like Nina, tooth and nail to do that. And then all of the, you know, individual survivors, there were 17 of us all together on hashtag let her speak, which is also, um, hashtag let us speak for the Victorian jurisdiction and the legislation there. Um, and just recognizing the importance of all of those different, you know, organisations or Rosara, um, you know, and Michael Bradley from Mark Lawyers and the, and the Mark Lawyers team and, and everyone who contributed to that. Yep. Change-making is, is not a solo sport. It's, not a, it's never a solo sport at all, you know, and my mother who has just, you know, she's, she's still not ever completed her university degree. Um, you know, Nico Bester is now a doctor of chemistry. He was banned from campus, but he was able to finish his degree. Um, and he even served a prison term while he was there for perpetrating another crime of production of child exploitation material where he bragged about what he did to me online. You know, mum still hasn't finished her degree because she spent just, I, I don't know what the total of hours would be, on, on fighting the system that is broken in so many ways and fails so many people and in many ways for the for those who who are already you know who are like often born into a system that is stacked against them in the first place and especially your aboriginal and torres, our aboriginal and torres strait islander um people in australia that is magnified those intersecting forces that are stacked um unfavorably and to we <laughs> this is again why we, it needs to be a community approach yeah and it, needs to be it needs to be an understanding of the fact of like stepping back and listening. Mm. We don't know that experience if we are not that, yeah. whatever that situation is, you know, yeah. because lived experience can't be mimicked, can't be no. synthesized. And that it just is. Yeah. You can try and try and try to put yourself in another person's shoes, but you just, you, you just won't be able to. No. And also you don't need to, you can just listen. And that doesn't mean like precluding or censoring people who don't have that lived experience from actually joining in and becoming mm. a part of the conversation and asking those questions. But with respect to the fact that there's yes. always going to be... There's sort of good respect the dignity like, in the room too. Like the, this idea of the human condition, like everybody's human condition is different yep. because of their human experience yep. being different. Yeah. And if you hold that, then you can walk forward. Grace, thank you so much for joining us here today. I hope one day maybe we'll have you back. Yeah. I mean, I, I love your pets. You, uh, like, <laughs> there and are you curious animals in this place as well. Lots of nature to ground us. Your reptilian uh, family that you have. Yes. <laughs> cool. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Grace Tame's book is The Nightlife of a Diamond Miner. You can get it pretty much everywhere if you're in Australia, at bookshops and online. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Booker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. 
We are on Twitter, just at Changemakers99, and I'm on Twitter still at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. <laughs>